RFU contains grown-up themes and occasional coarse language when they get carried away. Please take care while listening. Hi, professors. This is Akel Fernandes, and I'm a sophomore double majoring in screen studies and psychology at Clark University. Recommended for you this week is the film A Vida Invisível, or Invisible Life, from 2019, made in Brazil and directed by Karina Yunus. The film stars Carol Duarte and Julia Stockler, and I'm recommending this film because I think it deserves more attention. This film is about women's voices and desires that are silenced. And although the film is set in the 50s, the stories of these sisters still reflect the ones of many women today. This. This. This is recommended for you. For you. For you. A podcast where Clark University Screen Studies professors watch and discuss films suggested by Clark University students. Welcome to recommended for you i am soren Sorensen. i'm hugh mannon i'm rock sommer and today we are discussing invisible life from 2019 directed by kareem Ainos. and this film was suggested to us by raquel fernandez who is a screen studies major and a psych double major and uh so i think we should talk a little bit about why we think raquel suggested this film uh, i can think of one good reason raquel is from brazil and this is a brazilian film that's an now, that's an obvious reason. Uh, there's much more subtle and complex reasons why I think this film was suggested. I, I liked Raquel's uh, suggestions were um, there. I think she she actually kind of was circling three different films. And I think two of them were documentaries. And this one was a narrative. And I thought this was a little bit more in everybody's wheelhouse and kind of and it also won this big prize at Cannes in 2019, um, which is you know pretty wild as well. But I, I had never heard of it. And, and I'm ashamed to say that I don't know much about Brazilian cinema. Um, and so this was a, you know, another welcome thing to, to, to check out. Totally. I feel like we should have Raquel here if we want to understand it a bit better and it's like context meaning both like the context of the setting and the narrative of the film itself uh but also like in the context of brazilian cinema uh that being said yeah this is a very poignant story that i know raquel uh, said in her voicemail to us you know sp- speaks to her in the 21st century and and certainly was uh hitting me a lot harder and closer to the heart than I ever anticipated, uh, perhaps because of my, you know, you know, generalizations that it was a Brazilian film and a film set in the fifties. Um, but yeah, mm. one that, that speaks across borders and across generations. Yeah. I think, uh, I think Raquel selected this to make us cry hard. Uh, this is a tear jerker. I mean, at the end of this film, I defy anybody to watch this, especially the last 15 minutes, and not be deeply moved by what they're seeing. Eurydice! Guida, me espera, Guida! Eurydice! I want to. I want to definitely sort of flag uh, spoiler alerts here because we can't talk about this movie without talking about its ending. And there's some. I think there's some world in which if you say that the ending did such and such a thing, made you cry, or the ending is so great, um, then that even that's a spoiler. So I, I want people who haven't seen this because it is from 2019, and that maybe there are some people that are listening to this and thinking, well, maybe I won't watch this. Maybe I will. Um, I, you know, we could. It sounds like we could say at the outset that, or at least I can say at the outset that I that I certainly do recommend it. I know we sort of. Save that for last, traditionally, but the tradition is short, so I'm going to break it. Um, 
Kareem Ainu's um, directed 20-some feature films since 1992 um, and is sort of seemingly a very important figure. Um, and again, Raquel could answer this a lot better than than we can, than the two of us can, or the three of us can, sorry. Um, but uh, the the for, for those of you who haven't seen the film, the, the log line is kept apart by a terrible lie uh, and a conservative society, two sisters born in Rio de Janeiro, uh, make their way through life, each believing the other is living out her dreams half a world away. So I just I wanted to sort of get, get establish that context from the outset. That being said, I think we could like hold off on our discussion of the ending because it's not just that the ending is like surprising and especially moving or especially difficult. I think it's also heartbreaking in a sort of, uh, you know, in a way that stands out from the rest of the film, which in and of itself, you know, these earlier moments and much of what the story attends to for the first three quarters of the film is also quite heartbreaking and difficult. Uh, I think what surprises us and what stands out is, is that this, this is a film that sets itself up from the gate as tackling a whole bunch of really awful, <laughs> but also relatively, unfortunately common experiences. And then, go somewhere unexpected with it. Um, so I think it'd be great if we like maybe took the first 15 minutes or so to, to talk about what we encounter in those first couple acts. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think um, the one thing, you know, one, one road into this is to say that this film is uh, a film about sexuality, but that depicts sexuality in a way that I think is far more blunt and harsh than just about any film I've seen. And also a film that kind of, I think this is coupled together with that, um, a film that very much rejects any conception of the male gaze. Um, this is a film that somehow like, uh, you know, it, it feels to me like a film that you expect to be, like I think based on the, the way you read that synopsis or things that you would see in a trailer or things that you would see in a kind of, um, I don't know, like a promotional context, that you would think that this is somehow a sexy film, and it ends up being a, as opposite that as it could possibly be to the point that I, I would almost want to argue that this is a film about contraception more than it's a film about sex. It really wants you, it, it almost convinces you that that sex is what's wrong with everything, <laughs> um, but it's certainly what's wrong with a lot of these people's lives in the film. Yeah, one, one note I made... <laughs> Uh, fairly early on in this film was if, if this is how babies are made, maybe we shouldn't be making babies. Um, another way of putting that, and like that's my flippant, humorous response uh, that is a self-defense mechanism of a hardcore feminist with very complex relationships to the subject matter. Um, but I would say that's part to push you even further, Hugh, it's not even like a film about how sex is awful. It's also about a way in which it's, sex isn't even the topic whatsoever. You know, the topic is like power and patriarchy and misogyny and how those like social forces come out uh, so poignantly and harmfully in sexual contexts. Yeah, totally right. And I think, you know, just so that people who maybe are kind of in the, the middle group here, people who have not seen the film, but that are not going to see the film or not going to see it anytime soon and will have forgotten about this podcast by the time they see it. I mean, it bears mentioning a couple plot points need to be laid out, yeah. right? So, so like a pretty crucial thing is that we've got two protagonists, both sisters, and their father is a kind of um, <laughs> deeply problematic patriarch. 
and in in kind of seeing his role of uh, as the father of being one who kind of keeps the what what would you want to say like the not the sanctity of the family but the reputation of the family intact he literally splits the two sisters up with a lie right so i mean i'm skipping over a ton but we have to skip over a ton because it's a long film and a lot goes on in the plot but he splits the two sisters up by telling yuritsa that the other sister gita who is actually living very close to where yuritsa lives has gone abroad and is not coming back and and so that lie fuels uh, a kind of horrendous you know like life for Yuridsa simply by virtue of the fact that her sister is not present. Now I'm oversimplifying this tremendously, but mm. but there is a, a fractious or a fracturous lie that takes place uh, early in the film that kind of determines everything that goes on from then on out. Well, there's there's an innocence to the beginning of the film as well, which is there is this young love happening um, with Gita's character. Um, and you you feel like at the be- at the very top of this, and I, I don't maybe it's just because I'm cynical. I, I sort of was 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 concerned about this relationship, but you know she's go- going off to live in Greece with this sailor that she met. Um, and the father at that point, I don't I don't know if you 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 realize he's the villain yet. I mean, unless again, unless you're feeling deeply cynical about it, then not only does he sort of lie about um, Yuritsa being overseas or, or, or about Gita being overseas, but also they both believe, they each believe that they're in one, one in Greece and one in Austria. Um, and they're, in fact, living in the same city in, in Brazil. And I think, too, you know, he, he's a villainous father in the sense that all villainous fathers are villainous fathers. He does a couple of profoundly horrible things, and then he's largely absent. Right. So he's there in these two critical two or three critical moments when he kind of has all the impact and he sets balls rolling. He sets sort of snowballs rolling in a certain direction that get completely out of control over the long haul. And then is largely not part of the film. I mean, he's kind of there in the background, but he's not actively um, enforcing this horrific life. Hmm. Yeah, I'll say, you know, it's not that he disappears, but uh He's sort of in the background of later scenes, but then there, but there's moments that like ring or hit a lot differently that are little moments with him later, having seen the larger violences of earlier on. And what that speaks to for me um, is that both for us as viewers, as well as Eurizia and Gita as characters is there's a way to to enter this film and maybe to like experience their childhoods or their coming of ages and to believe in their father being a generally good guy who like loves them and wants the best for them. Uh, And, you know, his strictness or his sort of more dictatorial, you know, we, we get a sense very early on that like his way is the way, (laughs) you know, like that his, it's his house and both these two sisters and their mother are there to bend to his uh, command. But it's also, we're telling ourselves it's the fifties, you know, everyone's telling themselves this is the way it is. And there's a lot of slack given. Um, But once he takes these really, you know, once he lies so treacherously and repeatedly, um, it makes those smaller moments that happen again later, you know, like they reveal themselves for what they are, which is that, you know, like order is kept through relatively small um, actions and words 
until a crisis erupts, like until the patriarchy is like threatened and then force is used. And quite like literally, like there is like physical and sexual violence in this film. Um, and that those aren't, you know, that they're marshaled at certain moments and that they stand out as violent in some contexts, but that there's sort of this, this violence and oppression and unbalance that's consistent throughout and maintained. So when wait to get cut to way later, when Yuritsi, is that how it, I'm saying it totally wrong? I think Yuritsa. By the way, we, we should tell the viewers that this is Eurydice. Eurydice. Is how it's yeah. pronounced in a Brazilian way. So Yuritsa Yuri, is yeah, I think, so, how they're pronouncing So much it. later when Yuritsa is grown up and has a family of her own and he's living with her, um, there's a moment at like a Christmas dinner where she forgets that as, you know, now that her mother's passed, she is like the woman of the household and is expected to serve everyone dinner. And it's not just her husband. It's also her father who's like, come on. <laughs> um, and so like, it's like, that's a tiny moment. It would, it would be like eye rolly in another context, but having seen like his abuse of her and her sister earlier, it's it's just so unforgivable. There's the line um, I think that really stuck with me, which is you know the father kicks out Gita and says you ran out you ran away. Now initially she she ran away with her Greek lover, went to Greece, got pregnant, came back, and we don't know what happened when she was in Greece. We're not with her, but she obviously the guy she went there with was a total philanderer, and she came back. And she goes back to her family, pregnant, expecting them to welcome her at least somehow. And the father kicks her out and says, you you ran away through the back door. Now leave through the back door. And mm. it's it's just brrutal. Absolutely like, I, don't even brutal. Want, I don't want people to know that you're here, essentially. Like, he, he disowns her so quickly right after the mother gives her this warm welcome and hugs her and kisses her and, and welcomes her home. And she she's like, well, you know, where where's my sister and all this kind of and it, it, it seems like everything's going to be OK for a minute. And which, you, of course, because it's a film, you know that it's not. But um, and yeah, the father's already made up his mind. If I ever see this person again, they're not my daughter. I mean, and, and, and kicks her out sort of unceremoniously. It reminded me a lot of. Um, of a, of a Netflix, uh, a series, uh, limited series called Un- unorthodox from, from last year. I don't know if anybody saw that about, a, um, about a Jewish woman in, in Williamsburg escaping an Orthodox community, um, to, to go in fact to Europe and, and need wanting to study, this is Berlin actually, but wanting to study music, wanting to study piano at first. And, and it's, you know, a lot of the similarities, although this takes place in present day and, you know, and, and invisible life takes place in the, in the fifties. Yeah. You read, said just again, apply point uh Yuritsa's goal in life is to become a concert pianist and is going to go to uh Austria to study and this in fact ne- never happens but that's her goal and um that's kind of what drives her and a, a, just a form note I mean the, the for music for film music fans the, the music in this film is wonderful and it's uh it's a composer named I hope I don't butcher the name Benedict Schieffer or Schaefer um s-c-h-i-e-f-e-r um and it's actually on Spotify and mm-hmm. you can actually listen to it but it, it's the music's wonderful and it's woven throughout this film as both diegetic and non-diegetic um there's a lot of piano music in it um and and just some again some wonderful sound design so 
So I think like a, a logical turn to take at this point is to to talk about the ways. And so we've talked a little bit about the setup and about the way the plot sort of carries itself through maybe the film's large, uh, broad act two. I mean, the fact that this is very much in generic terms, this is absolutely squarely a melodrama. It works like a melodrama works. And I think it's a it's kind of a prestige melodrama in certain ways. Um, but I think like it would make sense for us now to talk about aesthetics. And this is a, an award-winning film, as, as Soren, I think, mentioned, that it, it won a major award at Cannes. And, um, and, and it's doing things in a, in a really aggressive but at the same time subtle way at the level of form. So things like lighting design, sound design, um, you know, exquisite cinematography. And so all those factors, I think, play into um, – our appreciation of the film and probably the reason why the film is considered to be such a major work. But um, sound, I think, is a really interesting place to start. And I'll just lead into this by saying the scenes early on in the film in the family's house, uh, which seems to me to be a a kind of strangely arranged space, um, we constantly are aware when we're in room A of what's going on in room B by virtue of the fact that it feels like the whole apartment or, or house has paper thin walls and sound just transfers between spaces in this really like unusual way. I just don't think it's something we hear a lot in cinema and it, it's just profound. Um, and then the film carries that approach to sound design into other scenes. Chateada com a sua irmã e fugiu, o marinheiro, né? A minha irmã não fugiu. Ela foi viajar. Ah, e volta quando? There's a lot of um, the, the, the kind of sound design from, um, from The Exorcist, uh, specifically in the dream scene when Karis has too much to drink and kind of falls asleep um, in, in his, in his, in his you know, apartment building. And you can hear the sound kind of being re- you know, reflected and refracted off of the, the halls and the, um, and the floor, the tile floor outside. And, and you're constantly aware of adjacent spaces. And I think this film does that a lot. And I think... Um, I was aware of it though at the very beginning of the film um, when they're they're sort of outside and in, in nature the two sisters and you're getting a sense of their closeness as a um, you know as a family unit there and and uh, my um, I, w- I I you know I betray some some a little bit about the space in which I watch this um, in my basement I have a, um, a a pretty big screen and, and a 5.1 surround system um, and so I know that's not not everybody gets to listen to it like this but my my dog was <laughs> freaking out when he was he was in this kind of rainforest atmosphere. Or this kind of nature atmosphere because this film has sound design trust me that doesn't it doesn't even need to have and if you get to watch it and surround it's really unbelievable um and incredibly immersive and that was just the opening scene of them playing and and there's not much at stake i mean there is there is a kind of a moment between them where um yoritza look i'm pr- i'm trying to pronounce the name as well as i can and in, in an homage to the late alex trebek who took big swings <laughs> when it came to uh, pronouncing other languages so i apologize if i'm not getting it right but um but you, you know Yoritza at one point is sort of lost um her Gita lost her sister and it becomes almost this this anxious um uh moment and the sound you you're hearing and I swear you're hearing animals that probably aren't there in the space and you're you're getting this kind of sense that well something's hunting her and you know there's this predatory kind of sound design which I, I don't know if I've heard in a film like this, especially like a film from the early, you know, that takes place in the early fifties and is a melodrama. It doesn't, it almost, it plays up that dreamscape of it and, 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 and sort of establishes her as the protagonist. Although this, I think this is a kind of a dual protagonist situation. So this is a film that also plays with like realism 
uh, and fantasy. And, you know, we do get actual, you know, in, in the Twilight episode, I joked about like the performance art uh, wood scenes, but we, we get something quite similar if done in a very different tension. I can't believe here. you're, I can't believe you're saying this because I had that in my <laughs> notes as well, there, where one's, one yeah. is standing behind the other when they're having that fantasy and they're looking at the camera and it's clearly not a lived yeah. moment, you know, it's kind of, sorry. So, I, so, I didn't mean, so we get these various <laughs> moments that are at times memories or fantasies or daydreams uh, that in which the sound design uh, is used quite creatively and sporadically and, and in these sort of unanticipatable ways uh, as you detailed uh, in that early scene. Uh, but we also get scenes that are quite like brutal in their realism, including in the sex uh, slash rape uh, and uh, as well as uh, delivery, baby delivery uh, scenes where I feel like a lot of the sound and I only watched it once, so I could be wrong, but it felt like it was, you know, dialed down. Uh, and so just a couple sound effects that are very much tied to the, you know, what we're seeing on screen or heard uh, in a way that quite like illuminates, you know, the horror of what's going on uh, and connotes quite clearly that this is not a romantic <laughs> sex scene, this is something uh, terrifying and something that one is participating in uh, and another is surviving through through hearing the, the sounds of like sex uh, and, and other times hearing so uh, the sounds of urination, hearing the so uh, sounds of uh, a baby passing through the vaginal canal. Like the, we, these sounds are so clear and poignant and sort of isolated and we know what they are and these like these bodily sounds uh, that the sort of horror, but like a very realistic real life horror uh, is heard as well as seen. Um, and so the sound is really important in those moments too. I think it, it should be, I, I totally agree. And I think I, I, it should be mentioned too, just lest we accidentally pass this by that uh, a major collaborator in this film is um, Helene Louvar, who is kind of a, a a, a big name cinematographer who's um, worked with uh, Claire Denis, Anya Svarda. And so uh, there's a kind of really, I think, aggressive approach to cinematography here. And it's a very difficult thing to do in a podcast. <laughs> if we were doing this in a video, we could flash up images on the screen to show how beautifully they're lit and how beautifully they're framed. But it is uh, a harsh, raw, very realist, real reality that's being so beautifully framed. And I think that that's always an interest. I mean, not to say that a lot of films do this, but I think it's an interesting dynamic and kind of a paradox that we're getting such a beautiful light touch applied to some of the harshest material you're likely to see. And um, again, like I, I think like we don't want to jump the gun and make a recommendation that everybody should immediately rush out and see this. But I think if you're interested in, in great cinematography, this is a film that needs to be looked at. And the, and the repetition um, that I noticed and really enjoyed um, that speaks to the, um, the sound coming from adjacent spaces as well was the, the there were many um, wide shots in the cinematography and some of them were establishing and some of them are sort of stopgap and, and, you know, but, or masters or something, but where you could see a doorway in the scene. Um, and yes, it's difficult to describe, but um, you know, you're looking through a doorway at a, at a miniature kind of pastiche that's happening or, um, and, and all of the characters, I mean, a lot of these, these spaces are pretty small. I mean, it has, it has a claustrophobic kind of feeling to it, but also, 
that works to put this to put them in this little diorama. I think that that the, the cinematographer had had framed a few times that I I really appreciated because it, it gives you a, a definitely a sense of voyeurism and a sense that you're sort of peeking in on something that you're not supposed to yep. be seeing. And yet the walls are paper thin. So what do you what am I going to do other than look and listen? And so the gaze is is the audience is just like you were saying about how it sort of disrupts the male gaze. It it feels like kind of a, a visual auditory metaphor that we get a lot in like 40s and 50s film noir. It's kind of that that metaphor of, you know, nobody knows what goes on beyond, behind closed doors. And people used to say that phrase a lot more than they say it today because I think in the era of cell phones and social media, we all know what goes on behind closed doors to some extent. I mean, I know that's not true. But but honestly, yeah. like uh, the, the, the kind of ability to hear what's going on in the next room coupled with these sort of framings where we're seeing, for instance, like this horrific, horrific sex slash rape scene um, between two, like up, like in literally in a doorway, as w- as if we were sitting in the other room, sort of just catching it out of the side of our glance, um, really conveys that sense. And so, isn't the isn't the idea then that isn't the filmmaker's idea here that this is kind of more? This is a greater part of more people's reality than we would ever guess. Yeah, I mean, I I think like almost like metonymically, like the film sort of suggests that. This version of things that I'm giving you, it's not the Hollywood version of things, but it is how things actually operate and work in the real world. And it's horrifying. Yeah, I mean, it's it's I think it stands out as a film experience because this is not the sex that we're used to seeing. And even in the case of rape scenes in films, this is not like the rape we're used to seeing. So when, what the scene we're referring to is Yuritsi's wedding night uh, where, you know, she gets they all get drunk. They do poppers. Uh, she is sick and vomits. Uh, and nonetheless, her husband like persists in his sexual pursuit. Uh, and and it's a really, yeah, just like horrifying, but r- relatively like mundane or like pedestrian. It's both horrifying and pedestrian at the same time. And I think it's, you know, the horror is doubled in that it's not something we're used to seeing on film screens. Uh, and for many people, hopefully, ideally, it's not something we're used to encountering in everyday life, but it also uh, is made, it's its aesthetics and its realist aesthetics are also such not so as to not like sensationalize or um, say, it's a both, it's both about her, <laughs> but it's also about how this is a thing that happens. Um, and speaking about like, you know, aesthetics in the scene, there's also a way that near the end, because it is an extended scene, when we're finally on the bathroom floor with them, there's a way that there's a sense, you know, how the shot is framed, you get a sense that it's going for intimacy or proximity or like emotional relation so that we it's important that we see her face and see how not there she is. Uh, at the same time, it doesn't go for the very tight close-up, but goes for sort of the tightest frame we can get while seeing everything. So that on one on the bottom right corner of the screen is her face, and on the upper left is his ass. <laughs> and yeah. and we hear the sex sounds, and it's it's both close and far. Um, but it has that, cla- it, you know, it's what that claustrophobia of that sequence at least is building up to. And one of my favorite uh, moments in this film is the is the scene immediately following. So I should say there is like a cut that jumps in time after, 
you know, the rape scene and they're both standing looking in a mirror and he holds up their hands together with wedding bands. And he is saying, he, like maybe he seen, means to be saying we're married, but to me, it's also like, this is marriage. Yeah, I own you. This yeah. is what just yeah. happened. Yeah. And he thinks he's being sweet and that makes it ever the more awful. And so that's a tight medium shot. And then we go outside with her. Like she literally, like all this horror has taken place in this home. She hasn't, she's still wearing her slip, her makeup and hair is still a mess. And she walks outside into the backyard um, to this, you know, dilapidated pool of sorts uh, and, and finds a cat. And like, you know, the cat acting here is wonderful because the cat acts like a cat (laughs) in that, you know, the, she, you know, gets close to the cat. The cat walks away a little, but she goes and sits down by the pool and the cat joins her and it's this huge wide shot. And so like, you know, it doesn't erase what just happens, but you can like breathe, you and she can breathe. It's one of the widest shots in the entire film um, and That's it right. doesn't last long, but it's so necessary. I also think that there's something really clever and nefarious about the way that their sex plays out in in later scenes, which is that um, there are these little glimmers of hope that that she might be getting some enjoyment out of it, which is, you know, this feels good or something she says at one point, but then she gets pregnant, which she didn't want to do. There's always some negativity attached to it. And then toward, and then in the scene where she gets into the conservatory and she's, she's being playful with him sexually, it's to get what she wants. I mean, it's, she's trading sex for something that she wants. And so it's, it's literally like, like you, you, she can't even enjoy a sexual experience with her husband because it's never sex. It's actually you know, coerced or, or, or rape or assault or something. And it's, it's that, that part's really dark because you kind of are rooting for her as the protagonist. And then, and, and, and that never, ever is satisfying for her. Yeah. It bears mentioning too, uh, for people who have not seen it, that we're talking about a relationship that I think plays out, plays out over the course of probably I don't know, five, seven, nine years. I mean, so this is a marriage and it's a marriage that I think by out, we would certainly not call it a successful marriage, but it's a marriage which by outward perceptions, I think people would sort of chalk up as, oh yeah, they're successfully, that's a successful couple. Like, I think when you see it from without, like they seem like a nice normal couple who kind of have nice dinner parties and and everything seems okay, but we're seeing it from the inside and it's, far more complex than that and begins in an abusive way and kind of ends up with a kind of banal complacency. And I think that word banality, I mean, we think about like the banality of evil, you know, this film is a a film that is deeply invested in how things become banal, what banality is and highlighting events, which are clearly not that, but which people sort of, you know, incorporate into their everyday lives, learn to live with and kind of suffer through. And uh, the film is very much centered on that. Um, It sounds, though, like a depressing, (laughs) awful experience. And I did not have that experience with the film. Hmm. So we've sort of traced a little bit what happens with Yuritsi when on her own heading into marriage and family life and keeping up with the piano, always aspiring uh, to be trained more formally. Uh, Meanwhile, Gita, as we noted, is kicked out of the house when she comes home from Greece pregnant. Um, And, you know, it's, it's a dark (laughs) period uh, that, that immediately follows. And yet some of the greatest like joy to be found in this film for me uh, was in the alternative life she makes for herself. Um, so she ends up 
you know, she d- gives birth to her child. She doesn't immediately take him home, but is later, later, you know, has a change of heart and, and brings her child home. Uh, and she's like living in, from what we can tell is a space carved out for single women, uh, you know, in poverty. Uh, but she soon finds family and makes family with Philomena, who's my favorite character. <laughs> um, and and it, it's clear mm. that either she herself, uh, she's working two like rough working class jobs, but maybe also is participating in or at least affiliating with uh, sex workers. Uh, and Philomena herself is like a retired sex worker who has uh, inherited her house through a past client um, and it, who, and Philo uh, herself ends up passing away and giving the house to Gita. Um, but their friendship uh, is so beautiful and the lessons learned there, you know, if this is a film that that tells us just how horrible, you know, traditional patriarchal family structures uh, often are, it's also a film that illustrates how beautiful family can be uh, often out of necessity when defined otherwise. So there's a really beautiful line mm. that like family is not blood, it's love. Um, but also a lot of the like working through of these like straight <laughs> straight women's relationship to men uh, who have found it relatively unsatisfactory but are giving it a try nonetheless. You know, that that scene in the doorway when Gita comes home and Philo's like, you've been out, you've met someone, you've been out with a man again, haven't you? And she's like, yeah. I'm I'm trying to have a good time, but it's hard. Oh, and then Philo says, "Who needs a man for a good time?" Um, and it's just—it's hard because men are involved. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. No, it's well said. Yeah, <laughs> it's well said, and it's really beautiful. There, you know. So they're, you know, sort of in addition to these like table scenes of like traditional families where women are serving men and having spent days making food, uh, we also get these scenes of like Philo and Gita. And Gita's child, like, uh, and another friend who we aren't really told much about, but he's there too, um, yeah. <laughs> like having their own Christmas yeah. dinner, and it's all it's really lovely and tender. I think you really are primed in this film because of the the just monstrous lie that the father tells um, in order to keep these two the sisters apart. That you are you are prepared for really tragic stuff to happen to these women as this story goes on, and even as they're separated. That's the real tragedy of it. Um, and then as those things don't happen, I'm thinking, okay, well, this isn't your tip. This isn't going to be Lars von Trier torturing women and in, in in breaking the waves or something like I, or, or, you know, Dogville or whatever. Like I, I was sort of prepared for that stuff to happen. And even though it is horrifying and even though there, there is this, you know, this, these awful toxic relationships, what you really, it's really a love story between the two sisters who are absent from each other's lives. And that, um, that line rocks that you just mentioned. I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned it. Um, it, it evoked this idea of the family you choose, and 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 an outcast. Somebody, anybody outcast from a family understands that that family is love and not blood, right? And and you because you make these relationships in, that are that are broken, and you forge them elsewhere if you're lucky. Um, and the, and the the but the the women caring for each other. The, the, that mirror image of um, Yuritsa uh, caring for her mother while um, while while Gita is caring for her mentor, uh, Philo, right? 
Um, yeah, and it's, it's just a, that was just such a beautiful mirror image because you know you sort of you their family is also you know duty and responsibility, um, and so you you get both sides of it, which is like I I might not love my mother very much, but I'm taking care of her, and this other person who is has an intense love for her friend and mentor, um, and yet it kind of encompasses all that family can can be. Um, and and the fact that this this film bothered to do that on top of everything else it was doing, I was I was sort of really impressed by that because even for somebody that didn't notice that it was happening, you get that line family is is love and not blood i thought that was that was lovely yeah and so in that context i was talking about this sort of secondary character philo and gita and their love and friendship and family uh but there's a way that this you know narrative as a whole uh is is a love story of a very unique sort and it, it's a sister it's a sister's story, but it also sort of, for me, joins like the ranks of really great, like female friendship movies, you know, like the Thelma and Louise, Lady Bird, Booksmart, um, or even, you know, Can You Ever Forgive Me, which is about a beautiful friendship between a lesbian and a gay man uh, during the AIDS crisis. Like this, you know, yeah, it's it, it's interesting that ultimately it is about biological sisters, like on paper, but really it's about like the family mm. you make. And um, you know, the thing is yeah. about those films, though, is that those people are together in those films. I mean, yeah. this film is so yeah. tragic because they're not together. And so yeah. no matter what kind of love, no matter what kind of a love story it is or a friendship story it is, um, they're not a, they're not even allowed to be together. And they're just sisters. They just want to be together because they love each other. And and and. And that, you know, that could lead into a discussion of the ending. But I, I, I was I, that was incredibly moving that you're having these two parallel narratives during this film. Yeah. I mean, they are never together. And again, for people who haven't seen it, they, they part at a certain point. The lie is told by the father and they are never together and they die apart. So, I, I mean, it is, you know, yeah. I, I assume that you read you read said dies and, you know, but so it, it's made clear that Gita dies. Um, but we need to say that the film flashes forward to the present and in the most shocking way I, I like I never expected this to happen so this is a film that is a period film with every period detail exactly in its place and then all of a sudden we get this uh, moment in the film where it's uh, clear that Yuritsa has had a psychotic break the doctor says she's suffering from manic depressive psychosis there's this extremely off-putting, one of the most interesting shots I think I've ever seen in a film, but a shot of her at the doctor's office in the background, out of focus, and her mm. makeup has clearly smeared and run, and we can't mm. see her face entirely, but we can see the shape of a mouth and the shape of two eyes defocused in this really yeah. uncanny way in the background. My eyes were trying to focus, and I was expecting them to oh, pull yeah. focus, and it's just, it's so... <laughs> And it doesn't let you, right? So it it refuses to focus. And then we cut forward to the future. I started off this podcast saying that it's wild, you know, it's really remarkable that this period piece uh, and this Brazilian film like speaks, you know, so broadly. Um, But I had never sort of had that experience of a period piece, not in fact being a period piece, like that even though three quarters of it is set in the 1950s, the last quarter is here uh, in the 2020s. uh, And sort of, as a way also as a way of preventing us from casting such matters as the matters of the past, right? Like we who are living today are the like descendants 
of folks like this, um, which is also not to say that folks like that <laughs> don't exist today Absolutely. too, but there's this, it makes clear how these periods that we go, oh, back in the 1950s, it, you know, it was a, in some ways like a, a heartbeat ago, mm. you know, and those people are still here. Um, we are like living with them. Uh, and this is our world. Uh, it's theirs and ours uh, together. The really surprising heartbreak comes from the lack of reunion or reconciliation. Yeah. Yeah. Queria poder voltar no tempo, voltar para casa e te encontrar esperando por mim. Queria sentar ao lado do seu piano e te ouvir tocar. We tend to end these um, episodes with a, a bit of close reading, and I wanted to talk about maybe if we could plants. Because this is a film that's very green and full of plants, full of vegetation. Um, every apartment that we see has plants on the patio. Um, the the film begins in a sort of jungle-like environment, like in a really lush green environment uh, where the two sisters separate from one another and Yuritsa can't find Gita and it's this kind of traumatizing thing. Um, but at the end of the film, Yuritsa is in some sort of... What what would you call it? Like maybe a convalescent convalescent home, yeah, assisted living or something. Assisted right? living she, she situation. Has people bringing food out to her, and she's she's yeah. caring for plants. Her daughter's yeah, there. It's clearly being taken care of. It. Yeah, yeah, but she's caring for little plants right yeah, on a rack, yeah. and um, that's the situation in which we get a whiff. I think I'm right about this plot wise. We get a whiff that um, that takes us in the direction of the letters that Gita had been writing all along to Yuritsa, which are read in voiceover through the film and who and which then are actually discovered by or given to her. Uh, they're found in her parents' apartment by um, her daughter. And so she ends up reading these letters, which leads her back to and and I don't even know how to explain this. It feels to me like somehow the 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 little mini utopia of Gita's living arrangement, which is not that far away from where Yuritsa lives, but they never cross paths has turned into some sort of like educational like like institution for children or something I, I can't even begin to explain it it's not explained the, in the film th that was like a missing scene or something like I feel yeah. like there was some they they must have gotten in touch with the you know with the, this person's grandniece or whatever you know I I, I was just I, th that was that was a slightly confusing beat for me too where it's like all of a sudden they're there and she's face to face again with the actor that plays uh, Gita playing her her playing character's her granddaughter yeah. granddaughter um, yeah, yeah granddaughter and it, and it is but that part is just a gut punch because God. you have an elderly version of Yuritsa face to face with the young version of of Gita in in the guise of or you know in the in the person of her granddaughter. Yeah, it's just I mean unbelievable moment. It really is. And she just won't keep her hand she's just hugging her and and holding clinging on to her. Um but the the thing about the plants, I mean, I, you know, I I I noticed that too and and you know, there's there's a sort of a there's the there's the easy answer, which is that they they're in this tropical and this environment that like plants can thrive in, you know, in all these different kinds of plants. Um, but also this this representation of these people being being incredibly nurturing and wanting to wanting to nurture, even if it's not in the traditional sense of I want to have a child now. Like, no, that's not what it, what it is. I think there there's some there's something about the green and the freedom and the nature that that is the only respite that they have from these lives that are so crushed down and claustrophobic. And, you know, I don't even like that word claustrophobic, but the, these lives that are that feel so closed in, I guess. Yeah. 
At the same time, I could have sworn that this older Yuritsi is saying, whose husband has also just passed, is saying that he used to take care of the plants, and she can't remember mm. what days they're supposed to be yes, fed or watered. That's water. right. She said she said your father used to do mm. this or something, right? Yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah, for sure. I um, was and, also but, confused. But she's keeping them alive, right? Just yep. like against all odds, and, yep. and no matter who they belong to, <laughs> yep. it's sort of like, yeah, I'm gonna. This is what to, this is what you do. Yeah. I was also confused as to who had the letters because initially we understand that Gita is sending these letters to her parents, but I. I could have swear could have sworn that we find them in the end because somehow Yuritsi's husband had them. I I just assumed that the father passed them to, mm-hmm. to him, you know, or or that they were they were in his father's effects, and and he just you know he I think you get the idea that that well I sort of had the idea that her her husband knew that her sister was sending these letters and never told her because he was an evil person as well. I mean, he well, was he's sort of, sh- he's shocked. So there is an earlier confrontation scene. There is a moment where we think G- where Yuritsi thinks Gita has passed because mm-hmm. in order for Gita to inherit Philo's home. She has to become Philo and Gita has to This is die. incredibly <laughs> complex for people who have not seen this film. And, and it's at this moment that we get the sort of cathartic confrontation of Yuritsi and her father and her father spills the beans and also demonstrates a certain amount, a slight amount of remorse because he thinks of Gita's child who must now be abandoned. And, and I don't know, in that moment, there, there are moments where I wanted to, you know, where I found Yuritsi's husband vaguely more sympathetic, or at least where he just like demonstrated some investment in her emotional life and her emotional state. And for me, that scene was one of them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's, let, I think we should talk about this ending. I mean, among other things, he's now passed and out of the picture, which helps things immensely for us, but their children are here and with her and their grandchildren. And this like is a return to the the element of banality uh, that is sort of <laughs> the banal horrors of heterosexuality, in that like family, you know, goes on like mm-hmm. uh, that. You know, Yuritsi's children were conceived. You know, we saw the context of their con- conception, uh, and yet here they are now, middle aged themselves, because Yuritsi is like in her seventies or eighties. It's a shock to see them middle. It's it's a shock to realize that the children are the children, right? So when we yeah. see them as just these kind of, I, I mean, I, I'm I'm just gonna say this sort of these schlubby middle aged <laughs> people, right? I mean, they're not they they don't look like movie stars in any way, yeah. shape, or form. These are just absolutely regular people, and these are the children that we saw five minutes ago in these in these early scenes in the fifties. And it's sometimes it's just yeah. hard cut to it too. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Like I think it it takes you on this time travel. Um, which is really skillful, and 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 you don't. I didn't feel confused by it, you know. Right. Um, so, what do we think? Do we recommend it for you? Do we recommend it for our our listeners? I would. I think I betrayed my. Yeah. <laughs> this is not a secret. Yeah, I definitely would recommend it. Yeah, I would too. I don't think the film is is necessarily for everybody, but who cares? I, I mean, I think <laughs> it should be for everybody. I would have, of course, preferred a different ending, but I think the real beauty the beauty in the tragedy of the ending is that it, it makes, it's a film that like makes you sit with the irresolvable conflicts and violences that is human life. There are, 
you know, we turn to movies often for resolution of those sorts of conflicts that every day just flow one into the next. But there's also certain circumstances that are incompatible, that are impossible to rectify. And it it's a film that makes you sit with that. But, you know, as we've said, it's not just sad and horrible. It's also really beautiful. And we don't just mean the cinematography, like it's emotionally gorgeous and loving. And I want more films about uh, women loving women, including sisters and friends like this. Well said. I mean, it's it's weird because you almost like fantasize about what if it were different? And that's the whole that's the film's whole yeah. point, right? Like yeah. what if something had gone? What if some slight little thing had gone different? Because that like that's the reality that she's going to live in. That's what she's going to wonder about forever. And so we're forced to do so as well. Yeah. Thanks, Raquel. Thanks, Raquel. <laughs> I'm glad this wasn't like a 12-episode TV series where just the thing that you want to happen doesn't happen, and then it doesn't happen in episode 12, and you have to watch another season, and then it doesn't happen in that episode 12. Yeah. Thanks, Raquel. Recommended for you is a Clark University podcast. All opinions expressed are those of the faculty participants. If you'd like to recommend a film for an upcoming episode of RFU, you can leave a voicemail with your suggestion at 508-798-4355. The Recommended for You podcast is produced by Andrew Hart. Music by Jimmy Jackson. RFU logo by AJ Simmons.